Africa rise and shine Africa zosa Africa amka na unai 7 a.m. Central African time. If you're just joining us, this is Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg here in South Africa, and we're on DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 802. And you can also reach us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, standing in for Lulu Gabu. And with me in studio, I have Anne Musa, Tabisolehoko, and Fikile Lingwati. Some top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Nigerian police rescue 19 pregnant women and girls in Lagos. DRC authorities appeal for funds to assist returnees from Angola. In economics, South African fuel prices increase for the eighth time this year. And in sport, Netball South Africa appoints new coach for the Proteas. But right now, let's find out what's happening in the world of news. Here's Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. 25 Malian soldiers have been killed and 60 are missing after suspected jihadist attacked two army camps in central Mali. The Malian government released a statement stating the provisional death toll was 25. Authorities earlier said military posts at Bulkesi and Mundoro were targeted on Monday but did not indicate the number of casualties. The death toll is among the highest suffered by Malian forces this year as they struggle to contain militant groups with links to al-Qaeda or Islamic State that have set up operations in parts of Mali. Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari says social media is threatening to undermine national security and has called for an end to hate speech. In an address to mark Nigeria's Independence Day, President Buhari urged people to exercise restraint and tolerance when discussing religious and political issues. His remarks come after an activist and former presidential candidate Umehele Sowere pleaded not guilty in court to several charges including sharing information online that insulted or Cause people to hate the president. Rights groups have criticized Buhari's administration for a deteriorating human rights record, especially due to the use of deadly force against a now banned Shiite group. The UK has issued a travel warning on Tanzania following the death last month of a patient suspected to have had Ebola-related complications. Tanzania's government has denied the report, saying there have been no confirmed or suspected Ebola cases. The UK issued the travel warning as pressure mounts on Tanzania to share more information on the suspicious death. According to the World Health Organization, a woman with the suspected Ebola virus died in Tanzania's coastal city. Of Dar es Salaam. Last week, the United States also warned its citizens about a probable Ebola death. Amid concerns, Tanzania is not giving enough information. The Commission for Gender Quality, the CGE, has expressed disappointment over the spate of sexual violence in schools in South Africa. CGE met with the South African Council of Educators, says the Teddy Bear Clinic and the Department of Basic Education on Tuesday in Johannesburg. The meeting is a result of sexual violence in schools that seems to continue. Gender Commission's 
Commissioner Mbuise Lobota says they are calling on relevant stakeholders to ensure that these cases are reduced while ensuring that perpetrators are dealt with by the law. You don't find a clear, concise answer as to their commitment to deal with these cases. I mean, the sad part is with the says as a statutory body. What was depressing says that they were actually saying like, look, our hands are tied. I mean, this afternoon, what was extremely depressing was that they could not point actions that they've taken. It was like, look, our hands are cut off. SAIS has failed the learners. Sexual violence will continue. Violence, GBV, in our schools, heightened in our country. With SAIS not doing anything, it can't be business as usual. And finally, Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has condemned North Korea for test-firing what he says were two ballistic missiles. Tokyo says one missile came down in waters inside Japan's exclusive economic zone. The BBC's Steve Jackson reports. Shinzo Abe said the launch of ballistic weapons was a violation of United Nations resolutions and Japan's National Security Council would meet to decide how to respond. The firing came just a few hours after Pyongyang announced that nuclear talks with US officials would resume later this week. North Korea regularly test fires weapons to try to increase pressure on its adversaries, often at the same time as it uses diplomatic levers. These talks will be the first on the nuclear issue since February's failed summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, but the two sides remain a long way apart. Mr Trump's diplomatic outreach has so far done little to diminish the nuclear threat from North Korea. And that's the news. Headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. Starting off in Nigeria, our police in uh, the biggest city there, Lagos, have freed 19 women and girls who have mo- been mostly abducted and impregnated by captors planning to sell their babies. The girls and women, aged from 15 to 28, had been brought from all over Nigeria with promises of work. Channel Africa's Collins Nosa Atohengbe reports from Lagos. Lagos, Nigeria's commercial capital, is a place where anything is humanly possible. It's a melting pot for divergent social, cultural, and ethnic customs, not just of Nigeria, but of all parts of West Africa. This discovery was not a surprise, though, because similar centers where surrogate mothers made up of adventurous, money-seeking things are kept have been discovered in some other parts of the country, and human rights activists have been carrying out campaigns to educate the public on the danger of the arts and the need to educate girls while parents mind their obligations. One of the victims who was delivered of a baby but lost the newborn in addition to having the child she brought to the center taking away, Hope Bright says it was God who delivered her from death. I'm in the neighbor complete three days. They took me to the hospital. God helped me, I delivered that child. My baby died through us children. They collect the baby from me. I do not see that child again. Why Hope Bright, whose hope was not only dashed but also lost the brightness it had, was lamenting, Faith Obarogate, the nurse who helped take care of the pregnant girls for the baby factory, says she was not willing to accept the victims but was encouraged by the promise of the accomplished hotelier, Smart, 
who urged her to carry on with the care for the girls at her clinic. When the man and one of his friends brought Lady Olushi by me, so I told the man, the smart hotel that I'm scared. I don't know these people. For moreover, they are pregnant. He said I should not be scared. If there is anything, I should come and call him. The manager of the hotel where the girls are lodged once they become pregnant, Chibuz or Smart confirmed that some of the pregnant girls were found in this hotel along with a day-old baby that was ready to be delivered to would-be buyers who probably booked to illegally adopt the newborn. At the spot, Madam Sarge on my hotel, uh, they discovered four women with pregnancy and one baby. The condition of stay at the center is everything but hygienic. The girls, 19 in number, were cramped into a one-room apartment from where they are moved to the hotel to meet the prospective child trafficker. Two, two of the victims who also came to the center with their young children, Mary Friday Onyema and Florence John, narrates their ordeal. My auntie in Amakwaibum tell me I should go to, to Utakot. He get one woman that can buy the baby. If I deliver the baby, she will buy it and give me money. We are innocent. We don't know anything about the woman. They only, some of them will only tell you about work. When you came to the place, they will seize your phone. You will know, have means of communication again. What I have to say is that they should release us and we can find any of our destination and go back to our various houses. Nigeria has law to punish anyone who runs files of the regulations on human trafficking. But there is a serious decline in the number of female child who gets education because of evident lack of responsibility on the part of some parents and some forms of customs and religious beliefs, especially in the northern part of the country. The Minister for Women Affairs, Pauline Talent, says girls' education is a human right. I'm appealing to all our security uh, chiefs, our religious leaders, our political leaders to join hands with us to deal with this deadly act in our society. Nigerians' out-of-school population is the largest in the world. Girls' education is a human right. It is also our responsibility as parents to educate the girls, educating girls contribute significantly to the development of a stable, prosperous and healthy nation whose citizens are active, productive and empowered. What is not certain is what the girls will get into once released to their families. Going by the look of things, poverty seems to be the corporate here and there is no telling how successful any entity will be because of financial inducement which is the center theme for such art. Lots of couples who find it difficult to achieve pregnancy take advantage of situations like this where ritualists cannot be exempted from the evil involved. With collaborations between the law enforcement agencies and women groups getting involved in the call for education of the girl child, it is expected that the trend would reduce drastically. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosato before Channel Africa News. Still sticking with Nigeria, the discovery of what police are calling a house of torture has shocked the country. Nearly 500 men and boys were discovered to be imprisoned in a Quranic school in the northern city of Kaduna last week. Over the past few days, their relatives have been turning up to reunite with some of their victims. The BBC's Ishak Khalid spoke to a survivor and sent his report from, from Kaduna. And a warning, this report includes some upsetting themes. Tortured and abused. 29-year-old Isa Ibrahim was taken to this so-called Islamic school, supposedly to have his behavior corrected. I found myself there 
because of my sisters, my, my siblings take me there. He says that his family sent him here just two weeks ago, but already he bears pelt marks and burn marks from beatings. Living there is very difficult, it's like living in hellfire. Praying there is hard, eating is hard. If you are praying, they will beat you. If you are studying, they will beat you. Anything you do, they will beat you. Even if you are sleeping, before they wake you up, they will use can to wake you up. I'm in the compound where the captives were rescued. It is a one-story building, a prison-like structure, high walls and barbed wire, with more than a dozen rooms. I can see some abundant household items like mattresses, buckets, clothes, and books, apparently left in the wake of the police raid. Some of that is the one that cannot call it to say, please free us, please, we are in bondage. The police spokesperson in Kaduna State, Yakubu Sabu, took me around. When we came, all this row, from here to the end, they were all chained. So this is one of the rooms. One of the main hall where they, they were chained. They were chained. They were kept here uh, memorizing Quran. This is a sizable crowd at a camp in Kaduna City where the rescued captives are sheltered. Families are turning up trying to identify their relatives and officials are seated under a tree going through a list screening those coming for their relatives and presenting an ID or passport is one of the criteria. Families are happy to be reunited, especially with their children. Many of the relatives that have gathered to reunite with loved ones say that they were prevented from seeing those imprisoned inside the school. Ibrahim Adamu has identified his child at this camp. If we had known that this thing was happening in the school, we wouldn't have sent our children. We sent them to be good people, but they ended up being maltreated. I am sad. The police have called what happened slavery, and there are concerns that it is much more widespread. Many children in this part of Nigeria can't afford to attend school. Those who can often go to poorly regulated Quranic schools, like this one. Hafsad Baba is the Commissioner for Human Affairs and Social Development at the Kaduna State Government. I'm sure we're going to do mapping. We have to map all the schools, we have to map all these kind of facilities, and we have to make sure that if they violate the government orders, they have to be closed down completely. And then if we find any facility that is torturing children or harboring this kind of uh, horrific uh, situations that we have just seen, uh, they're going to be prosecuted because we have the Child Welfare and Protection Law in Kaduna State that has been signed. Details about what really happened remain unclear. Seven people have so far been arrested. But this school is thought to have operated in this way for years. And it is feared there are others across the region where the abuse continues. The Democratic Republic of Congo's authorities have appealed to the international community for assistance to more than 14,000 Congolese who recently returned from Angola. Most of them are living in transit camps in the central Kasai region. The World Food Programme is assisting, but local authorities believe it's not enough. Jean-Noel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. 
people returning to central Kasai are those who fled that province few years ago due to insecurity situation and violence caused by the Kamwena Sapo militias in that central part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's indeed hundreds of thousands of Congolese who crossed the borders to find asylum in Angola. Most of them expressed the will of coming back home after President Felix Tshisekedi came to power and called on all Congolese to come back here. A tripartite meeting bringing together authorities from Angola, the Democratic Republic of Congo and the UN High Commission for Refugees was then held and an agreement of voluntary repatriation was found. More than 14,000 people who returned last August are living in transit camps in the Kalambambuji territory, although there are more than 5,000 who have joined the host families, but the living conditions are too tough for those Congolese returning from Angola. That's indeed what the governor of the central Kasai province has said. Governor Augustin Kabuya explained that humanitarians promised that they would take over from the government and bring the assistance to those people as soon as possible, but up to now there is no enough assistance for them. Augustin Kabuya has then appealed to the humanitarian community. The legal framework was the tripartite Angola, DRC, UNHCR, and this was done. An agreement was reached and now we're waiting for humanitarians to come and take over from the government. They promised it would be done on September 16th, but nothing up to now. None of us has been contacted, but we think they will do it very soon. The humanitarian situation is then complicated for those Congolese who voluntarily returned from Angola. Local authorities in the Kasai province have recognized that they are getting assistance, but which is not really significant. The World Food Program is assisting them with food items and speaks about more than 600,000 people in need in that part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, but finds it very difficult to reach all of them since they are not all together in the same place and WFP is not everywhere. According to the World Food Program country representative, there was 1.5 million displaced people in the Kasai region and the agency always focuses its in intervention on the larger population. What's complicated for WFP to bring the proper response to all the needy people is that the UN agency doesn't have the capacity and the resources to be everywhere and make sure every single person is satisfied. Claude Gibidar is the World Food Program country representative. There are more than 600,000 people we know of. Okay, Those people are not all lined up in one place okay where they are receiving assistance you will always hear of people being in need we are not everywhere we cannot be everywhere we focus our interventions in places where communities are resettling where you know there was a 1.5 million people displaced in the kasai those people are returning so we are focusing on assisting the large the larger population and wherever those people come, they are immediately included in the assistance. But obviously, we don't have the capacity, we don't have the resources to be everywhere for every single person. 
Congolese returning voluntarily from the neighboring Angola are received in transit camps and other can join host families. They are taken care of by the Democratic Republic of Congo's government that brings assistance to them before they can benefit from the humanitarian community's intervention. That's indeed this kind of intervention that local authorities are appealing for as what's available is not enough to respond to the humanitarian needs of those thousands of people while there are others who have expressed their will to quit Angola. Their arrival will bring the number higher and higher and the situation might be more complicated unless the humanitarian community can assist very soon as promised. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnagwagwa has delivered his State of the Nation address on Tuesday in a bid to address political and socio-economic challenges that have threatened to sink the nation. In his address, Mnagwagwa admitted the country was facing challenges owing to economic reforms that have resulted in the suffering of millions of the ordinary people. Simon Mchemwa has more from Harare. During his State of Nation address, Sona in Harare on Tuesday, Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa warned economic saboteurs against speculative tendencies. Mnangagwa's warning came on the backdrop of sharp exchange rate increases of the U.S. dollar to the local currency fueling sharp price increases in retail shops. This forced the Reserve Bank to freeze bank accounts suspected to have been used for money laundering. By then, the exchange rate of the U.S. dollar to the RRTGS had reached 1 to 20, a move that triggered increases in retail prices to levels beyond ordinary people. Munangagwa had this to say. With the relative stability of the exchange rate over the past eight weeks. However, last week's events of exchange rate manipulation amounts to economic sabotage and should not be tolerated. We all need to adhere to the rule of law. Early this year, government banned the use of foreign currency when paying for services and purchasing goods locally. According to authorities, the demand for U.S. dollar was creating an artificial foreign currency shortage, hence the reintroduction of the local currency in the form of RTGS dollar, mobile money, and bond notes. Despite all the changes, Zimbabweans have continued to shun the local currency, citing instability and inflation. In a bid to address these challenges, government has come up with a new law that seeks to punish businesses charging in U.S. dollars of up to 30,000 Zimbabwean dollars or five years imprisonment. Munangagwa added, Government has not been concerned 
the emergence of monopolies as well as cartels as they engage in unjustified hikes. <coughs> While government will not refer to price controls, we are nonetheless in the process of reviewing the Competition Act in order to introduce deterrent penalties. Yes. While the new administration led by President Mnangagwa has declared war against corruption, a few arrests and imprisonments have been made. A new-look Zimbabwe Anti-Corruption Commission, ZAG, has been put in place and so far, the net has captured the former Minister of Tourism, Priska Mfumira, who is facing abuse of office charges amounting to 100 million U.S. dollars. Munangagwa castigated the road. Reports of mismanagement of public finances, which are exposed by the Office of the Auditor General and the brought before this parliament, must never be condoned. Action retards our development, frustrates our easy and cost of doing business reforms, robs us for revenues. Government will continue to strengthen institutions that help in the fight against corruption. We must rid our society of this corruption cancer. The sonar on Tuesday was boycotted by the opposition legislators who accused Mnangagwa of being corrupt and shielding his corrupt friends who are alleged ruining the economy. Mnangagwa admitted the economic reforms are hurting ordinary people and pleaded for calm. Mr. Speaker, the economic reforms we have embarked on are beginning to bear fruit. I'm aware of the pain being experienced by the poor. And the the economy working again from being dead will require time, patience, unity of purpose, and perseverance. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Mchema. Another South African cabinet minister has been implicated in the looting of Crime Intelligence Secret Service account at the State Capture Commission in Johannesburg. According to former Crime Intelligence official Colonel Danajaya Naidu, Sports, Arts and Culture Minister Natim Tetwa, who was police minister at the time, was bought a luxury vehicle using the unit's slush fund. Naidu, who is the sa- Naidu, who at the same time... Uh, who is in witness protection, is testifying through an audio link from a secret location about the looting of millions meant for intelligence work during the tenure of former crime intelligence boss Richard Mluli. Nomalizo Mandela has more. Colonel Naidu outlined details of how the Secret Service account was used to purchase luxury vehicles for officials at the Crime Intelligence Unit. He said that he personally delivered a vehicle at Minister Mteto's Pretoria residence. A Mercedes-Benz ML350, uh, this vehicle was purchased at Mercedes-Benz Amstlangerops. Which year was that? Would probably be in 2009 or 2010, year. Okay, all right. Uh, this vehicle was specifically purchased for use by the then Minister of Police, uh, Minister Nati Mtetwa. The Minister utilized this vehicle for a few months. Um, I remember this because General Mluli, uh, he instructed me to pick up the vehicle from the minister's house uh, as the minister informed him that he no longer, want, no longer wanted to make use of this vehicle as journalists were following him. 
Naidu told the commission that during the period of 2009 and 2011, former spy boss Richard Mluli used seven vehicles. He said that all but one were purchased using the slash fund. Mluli made use of seven vehicles um, over a period of time. Uh, the Mercedes and the rest that I mentioned is all procured uh, using funds from the Secret Service account. Um, yes. The first one, the Mercedes E350 CDI. The next vehicle chair is a BMW 530 diesel sedan. The next one, a black Jeep, um, a Lexus. General Mluli made use of this vehicle until his arrest in 2011. Naidu testified that at least 5 million rands was spent in one year on Mluli's seven family members and duly appointed to the unit. He said that two of the seven members spent most of the time shopping or at home. I had to deal with FM28 and FM27 regarding the payment of salaries, uh, reconciling the petrol claims, or just to, to visit them at the office. On numerous occasions, uh, or most of the occasions, they would not be in the office chair. They would either be at home or they would be at the mall shopping. I know this because when I would phone them, they would tell me they're at the mall or they're at home. And uh, these were members of the Mdluli family. Two of them. These were, yeah, these were two of the seven. Yes, that's correct. That you were handling. That's correct, yeah. Naidu added that the family members were also bought vehicles. Uh, it was seven vehicles in total. If I just name them, Chair. Yeah. BMW 330 diesel, a sedan. Yes. The second vehicle, Chair, a Nissan Micra. Uh, the third vehicle chair, a VW Golf 6, 1.4. Fourth vehicle chair, a Honda Jazz, 1.5. The fifth vehicle chair, a Audi A4, 2 liter. The sixth vehicle chair, VW Golf 6, 1.4. And the last vehicle being the seventh one chair, a VW Golf 6 GTI. Colonel Naidu is expected to conclude his testimony on Wednesday. The time is now 7.29 Central African time. Here's Anne Musa with your latest news headlines. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, 25 Malian soldiers have been killed and 60 are missing after suspected jihadist attack to army camps in central Mali. Burundi has announced that a first group of its refugees in Tanzania will return to the country on Thursday. And Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has condemned North Korea for test firing what he says were two ballistic missiles. Those are the stories making headlines. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says corruption in the health sector affects the country's most vulnerable citizens. Ramaphosa, who launched the Health Sector Anti-Corruption Forum at the Union Buildings on Tuesday, described the initiative as an important step in ensuring citizens receive their basic right to health care. The forum is a collaboration between government, business and civil society organizations. It also aims to prevent, detect and prosecute malfeasance in the health sector. Busi Chimombe reports. NGO Section 27's Umunyana Rugege was clear regarding the impact of corruption in the health sector on ordinary people. 
Often it means not having access to ambulances because of corruption or not having access to surgeries, life-saving surgeries because of corruption, fraud and theft at facility level but also at other levels. Section 27, together with civil society organizations such as Corruption Watch, have joined the Health Sector Anti-Corruption Forum, the result of an agreement made between government, civil society and business at last year's Presidential Health Summit. The forum will see the organizations working together at multiple levels to reform the healthcare system. Deputy Justice Minister John Jeffrey lamented the prevalence of corruption in the country's health sector. He quoted the Medical Aid Schemes Council that says the private sector alone loses 22 billion rands a year to fraud. We're all familiar with the ongoing investigations by the SIU into collusion between persons suing government hospitals for malpractice and certain state attorneys who either settle cases that have no merit or deliberately lose cases. South Africa's health sector vulnerability to corruption stems from the large and varied numbers of transactions on goods and services that must be procured in treating patients in both the private and public sector. This opens the opportunity for criminals to issue fraudulent orders and irregular tenders, collude in overpricing, and engage in other forms of malfeasance. Head of the Special Investigative Unit, Advocate Andy Mutibi, whose unit forms part of the forum, says they will make sure that perpetrators have nowhere to hide. Of importance is the focus on ensuring that we conduct quality investigation and produce quality outcomes. And this is where Honorable President Consequence Management comes in. Uh, we ensure that we, uh, we, we release the, the, the outcomes, whether it's civil litigation where we have found that there's recoveries that needs to be made. And indeed, Program Director, we are really delighted to see that today marks the official effective date of the Special Tribunal. And we will ensure that we support the Tribunal so that it recovers the monies that have been stolen. Other members of the forum include the NPA, Council for Medical Schemes, Financial Intelligence Centre, Health Funders Association and Health Professions Council. Addressing the official launch of the forum, Ramaphosa insisted that the initiative is not only a critical intervention for the current system, but the future national health insurance system South Africa will soon adopt. Therefore, if corruption in the healthcare system is not addressed decisively, it will undermine the government efforts to ensure universal access to quality health care. We must ensure that the pool of funds that is earmarked to ensure universal access to quality health care is not wiped out through fraud and corruption. And in this regard, this forum will play a critical role. The forum has been launched hot on the heels of the Competition Commission's Health Market Inquiry Report. The report paints a picture of an unaccountable and unregulated private health sector where consumers are subjected to high and rising costs without evidence of improvements in health outcomes. These will be some of the challenges that the anti-corruption forum will have to take time to address. And that report was by Busi Chimombe at the Union Buildings in Pretoria. The Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, has announced that three new gender grants have been awarded to three South African universities. She made the announcement at the University of Johannesburg's Auckland Park campus on Tuesday. She's on the Johannesburg leg of her tour of South Africa after spending time in Cape Town. 
Zoleka Kodashe filed the following report. The Duchess of Sussex is a patron of the Association of Commonwealth Universities, ACU. During a roundtable discussion with students and several leading women in tertiary education at the University of Johannesburg, Markle announced the awarding of grants to some South African tertiary institutions to promote gender equality. The recipients are the Universities of Johannesburg, Stellenbosch and the Western Cape. Markle says the goal of the gender grants is to promote gender equality. The goal here is to be able to have gender equality, to be able to support women as they are working in research and higher education roles, and also to be able to have workshops to convene things that are really helping people understand the importance of gender equality. When a woman is empowered, it changes absolutely everything in the community, and starting an educational atmosphere is really a a key point of that. The ACU has a network of 500 universities from over 50 countries. The organization works to shape policy, strengthen capacity, convene universities across borders and seek change through scholarship opportunities. Students who are part of a roundtable discussion say meeting the Duchess has been an inspiration. We got to talk about our research, um, about the work that we're doing now that we hope to do in the future. Um, And it's just really great to know that... um, what you're doing is important and not only important but that you will actually get the support that you need to carry it forward. On the importance of higher education, particularly to women and to me as a man that's a big challenge because we ought to be also on the front line and support this. UJ Vice-Chancellor Shalidzi Marwalla has welcomed the efforts by the Duchess to try and uplift women through education. If you want to feed a village, empower a woman. And this is really what it is all about. Women must be empowered. Uh, The projects that they are doing that are specifically aimed at bridging the gender divide and ensuring that uh, women take prominent leadership roles at the highest levels in all the countries. Marco also visited a school that works with a local charity and receives UK aid funding to raise awareness about sexual violence. On Wednesday, Prince Harry will join the Duchess to visit a township where they'll meet inspiring youth and entrepreneurs. Before returning home, they'll also meet representatives of South African and British businesses, former First Lady Grasso Marshall and President Cyril Ramaphosa. Zoleka Kodashi in Johannesburg. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. India will mark the 150th birth anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi today with gala events, rallies and cultural shows. But the celebrations will come amid a wave of ultra-nationalism, warlike tensions with rival Pakistan, divisive propaganda and brazen praise for the assassin of the Apostle of Peace. Rana Sen has more from New Delhi. India's Foreign Minister S. Jay Shankar sounded the bugle for the celebrations which critics say are designed to establish Prime Minister Narendra Modi as Gandhi's true heir. Gandhiji's life was also an example of standing up to fear and intimidation. His thoughts are 
a source of courage as we fight terrorism in all its forms and manifestations. His ideals have influenced some of the greatest figures of our age. The UN declared Gandhi's birthday as the International Day of Nonviolence, while Secretary General Antonio Guterres recalled his legacies. This vision went far beyond politics to encompass human rights and sustainable development. Gandhi promoted nonviolence not just as a philosophy and a political strategy, but as a means to achieve justice and change. But many among overseas Indians, such as physician Ravi Gupta, say Gandhi's relevance is intact only because of Modi. Prime Minister Modi has started uh, the celebration of each leaders, starting with Gandhiji. This is very important for our second generation to understand our history and the people who had. So this is a great achievement for the government of India to spread the word of Indian leaders who is not going to be forgotten, who is going to be in second generation. And others, including US-based businessman Ramesh Patel, say they feel let down by Gandhi and other Indian leaders of the yesteryear. Let us talk about the new India that Gandhi already inspired, but the things did not work out very well after he passed away. And look at what happened, a lot of problems in India. So Narendra Modi is trying his best to correct and rectify a lot of problems. So we should all rally behind him. Gandhi's India has transformed. Lynching mobs are now public heroes. Dissent is punished. And 8 million Kashmiris are in a lockdown since August. Iltija Mufti is a daughter of the region's former chief minister, incarcerated along with thousands of others without charge. Is this Gandhi's India or is this Godse's India? This is an India which would pride itself on secularism, on its democratic ethos. We are hurtling towards an authoritarian regime. This doesn't feel like a democracy anymore. And how long will you keep using Kashmir as a red airing? Is this the solution to all our problems, that you use Kashmir to divert everybody's attention? And that was Iltija Mufti, the daughter of former Jammu and Kashmir Chief Minister, Mehuba um, Mufti, ending that report by Rana Sen in New Delhi. As the festive season draws closer, South Africa's Stain City Foundation is gearing up to host yet another annual Delivering Happiness to Deepslut. The Johannesburg North Estate Development is neighborhood is neighbor to the disadvantaged community of Deepslut. The initiative is part of Stain City's corporate social investment project. And for more on this, Tutongobeni spoke to group head at Stain City's marketing and events, Tammy Menton. The foundation was officially started, or unofficially started, should I say, about eight years ago, which was a direct instruction from both our developer and the founder, Do Stain, um, our developer, Giuseppe Plumari, to look at how we, as this massive big development, can be better neighbours. Actually, our closest neighbours are, in fact, uh, the Dipslow community. And um, what we found quite jarring was, you know, this is happening all over the country where we've got... Um, you know, massive big-scale developments taking place on the doorsteps of um, townships that are, are in desperate need of finance and help. Um, so it seemed like a really wonderful opportunity to use this as a um, a way to be good neighbours, essentially. So Stain City started um, looking at ways that we could directly affect the people that live there. Um, and it, it, it resulted in a number of really wonderful initiatives, um, some of which are hugely successful and up and running already, and others which are in planning, which is wonderful. But just to name a few, um, the public partnership with um, and private partnership with the roads that are leading from uh, the four-ways area that are eventually going to end across Stepslut, the idea of having cycle lanes and, and pedestrian lanes 
Stains was born directly from the Stain City Foundation where um, we looked at how do we make it easier for people who live in Dixler to travel through to Stain City. So a lot of those people that live there are going to ultimately be working here in Stain City. Along with that was how do we increase the number of jobs that are going to be created and available. Massive opportunity at Stain City to increase jobs and skills. So um, there was a, our skills development centre which was founded. Um, I believe you've already had a, an opportunity to have a look at that. Um, and along with that came over 14,000 jobs, 15,000 jobs that's been created. So we knew we could do more. We're in a position where we're really fortunate. We've got some amazing um, stands available and property available, and we've got people that are buying in that want to contribute to uh, to Stain City and to the, the, the community. So part of what we do is 0.5% um, of every sale that we make here um, goes into our foundation fund, um, and that's in perpetuity. So for as long as we're selling at Stain City, then every time we do a sale, 5%, 0.5%, so it will go into this foundation. Um, and that kind of is used to roll out a number of activities throughout the year. Tell us about the Delivering Happiness to Dixlort. The Delivering Happiness to Dipslurt initiative has been going for eight years. This will be our eighth year that we're actually going into Dipslurt. The concept behind it was we just wanted to find a way to bring a little bit of joy to the people in Dipslurt, um, and particularly the children in Dipslurt, a lot of whose parents live and uh, sorry, work at Stain City. So many of them are actually employed here by the developer or they're a contractor or a subcontractor to one of the projects that are taking place. So we wanted to do something that would just bring a smile to the faces of all those children. The Tell us about the numbers. I think it has grown over the years. When we initially started, um, which was eight years ago, we had we, we went out with about 3,000 um, and to sort of touch 3,000 children's lives. We now this year are sitting on 12,000 children. So it's grown exponentially. Um, our target is to reach every single primary school-going child in the Dipslet area. So all seven of the public, private, uh, public um, primary schools in Dipslet will receive gifts from Stan City for the, the end of the year. How has um, the foundation's work, uh, I know you spoke about it, but like, how has it transformed the lives of the people that live in Deep Slot? I mean, you have all these programs, you know, different in, in, in different scales and s stuff like that, and you have people coming here getting skills. Some of them don't even go on to work here, but they also go and start um, their businesses. How has it transformed the lives of the people there in Deep Slot? I think it's had a massive impact, and I, I think to a large degree it's almost immeasurable. Um. And that was Tammy Menton, group head at Stain City's Marketing and Events, speaking there to Channel Africa's Tutongomeni. But right now, let's uh, cross on over to the money desk. Here is uh, Tabiso Lehoko with your latest economics news. Good morning. Zimbabwe has accused the United States of ignorance after the U.S. Customs and Border Protection announced it is blocking rough diamond imports from the Marangi fields because they were produced with forced labor. Government spokesperson Nick Mangwana says it's unfortunate that the U.S. authorities have been misinformed or misled to believe that Zimbabwe is mining diamonds through forced labor. Imports from Zimbabwe are not the only ones targeted by the ban. The U.S. agency listed a range of products earlier Tuesday from garments to China from gold in the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
Sibanye Steelwater in South Africa's northwest province says it is willing to find an amicable solution to end the dispute with the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union over salary increases. AMCU says it will seek a minimum wage of 110 US dollars per month for its workers, up from 818 US dollars. The union has taken Sibanye Gold and Anglo American Platinum to the CCMA over wage negotiations and planned retrenchments. Executive Vice President for Corporate Affairs at Sibanye Steelwater, Tam Bangosi, says that they are willing to negotiate to a point. He adds that they will not agree to a deal that would affect the long-term sustainability of the mine's operations. But it is unfortunate when we find ourselves in terms of the dispute. Our view is that we continue to engage with the AMCU and other unions with the intent to find an amicable solution to this. And as far as the wages are concerned, we hear where Mr. Maturia is. We've always approached these negotiations with open eyes. However, our view is that we're not going to be in a position where we compromise the future and certain bits of the assets because of one stakeholder. Our approach is that we need to get to a deal that is fair and commitment with where the assets find themselves in the interest of long-term sustainability and in the interest of all stakeholders. Kenya now risks being declared a hub for money laundering after Parliament thwarted a bid to compel lawyers to report on clients' money that they handle. This as MPs failed to amend proceeds of Crime and Anti-Money Laundering Act. The proposal sought to designate lawyers, notaries and other independent legal professions as part of reporting entities to whom anti-money laundering combating financing of terrorism controls would apply. The world's largest cocoa producer, Cordevoir, which expects to have produced about 2.2 million tons last season, had flagged that it planned to limit output in coordination with neighboring Ghana to contend with an oversupplied market. The two countries produce about 60% of the world's cocoa. It was not clear exactly how the government plans to monitor production from Cordevoir, thousands of small independent farms given previous struggles to stamp out illegal cocoa farming and smuggling. The British government will this morning submit what it calls its final proposals for a new agreement on Brexit to leaders of the European Union. At a conference of his Conservative Party, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is expected to say that the plan is a fair and reasonable compromise as the BBC's Jonathan Blake has more. Mr Johnson has said the UK's proposals for a new Brexit deal, replacing the backstop designed to prevent a hard border on the island of Ireland, would involve customs checks away from the border. The UK's new legal text will be presented to officials in Brussels as a take-it-or-leave-it offer to continue negotiations. A senior Downing Street official said the government was either going to be negotiating a new deal or working on no deal. The US dollar is trading at 359.95 Nigerian Nara, 10.91 Botswana Pula, 102.69 Kenyan Shilling, and 13.7 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 4.15 Brazilian roll, 
6477 Russian ruble, 7075 Indian rupee, 714 Chinese yuan, and 1525 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 81 pence to the British pound and at 91 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold $1,477, platinum $872 per ounce, a brand crude $59.30 a barrel. From an African perspective... And now it's time for your sport. Here is Figile uh, Lengwati. In our sports update, we're kicking off with Football News Club Rouge forward Emmanuel Bonaventure was ecstatic after scoring twice in his side. Surprised to all draw at Real Madrid in the Champions League, but now faces a painful double session in a tattoo parlor after coming good on a pre-match pledge. The 21-year-old did not take long to fulfill his promise, giving the Belgian side a shock lead in the ninth minute by beating Real keeper Thibaut Coutuas with an unorthodox finish. He struck again later in the first half to make his side believe in an unlikely victory at the home of the 13 times European champions, although Real salvaged a draw with the second half-headed goals from Sergio Ramos and Casimero. Dorette Berenhorst has been named the new coach of South Africa's national netball team, the Spa Proteas. Berenhorst takes over the reins from Norma Plama, whose contract came to an end after the Netball World Cup in Liverpool in July. Berenhorst is a former coach of South Africa's under-20 national netball team and has also served as the second assistant coach to Norma Plama at the World Cup in Liverpool. Berenhorst says she's ready to take up the challenge and continue where Plama left off. It's a great privilege and a great honour to um, coach the um, Spa Protea team. Um, like you said, um, it's not going to be easy, especially not the first three months um, playing in three big competitions. Um, first one, Africa Cup in um, two weeks' time. Um, not a lot of time for preparations. And um, yeah, um, Africa never easy to play against, but um, yeah, a, a, a great opportunity and a challenge for us to make sure that we just build on what normal um, dead for our country and we not, um, shouldn't go backwards but we need to go forward and make sure that um, we just um, become better and better in world netball. Dorette will be assisted by former player and current Tswane University of Technology varsity netball team coach Dumisani Jaoke. Jaoke, who retired in 2015 and has been impressed in her young coaching career and says she's looking forward to the new chapter. I'm also looking forward to, to this new chapter in my uh, very young netball coaching career um, and I cannot wait for, for the, the whole adventure just to unfold itself and, and yeah, give back to, to the netballing community of South Africa and assist in growing the sport in our country. The first assignment for the coaching staff is the Africa Netball Cup tournament taking place in Cape Town from the 18th to the 22nd of October. That will be followed by a test series against England, also in Cape Town from the 29th of November until the 1st of December. Alberto Salazar. 
Four-year doping ban is a blow to athletics, but was the right punishment? That's according to some of those taking part in the World Athletics Championships in Doha this week. Salaza, who has coached a string of high-profile athletes, including double Olympic gold medalist Mo Farah, was banned after an investigation by the United States Anti-Doping Agency. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Pumuzora Magadza and Tutongobeni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you so much for joining us. For any comments on the show, be sure to send us a tweet at Rise Shine Africa or at info at channelafrica.co.za is where you can email us. You can also uh, send us a WhatsApp message to plus 27763003327. Right now, taking us to the top of the hour and for news and more news from an African perspective is Zama Jobe with a song titled Waza.